0: Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in week two of a message series called Take Heed. And while this isn't a phrase that we often use or even hear today, it's an important one. You'll remember back to last week, we learned to to take heed means to pay close attention to something and to be careful about it. This month, we're spending our time in Luke chapter 12, In this chapter, Luke recorded five warnings from Jesus. And four of these warnings must be heeded by God's people today if we're going to live faithfully for him, if we're going to be faithful in our Christian walk. The fifth warning should be heeded by a lost world, those who have decided to either reject Jesus or who are still on the fence about following him. At the beginning of this chapter, we saw Thousands of people uh, flocking to Jesus, gathering around Jesus to hear him, but we know that their motives weren't right. They weren't there to learn more about how they could live for God or to learn more about this Jesus person. They just wanted him to perform a miracle or do something for them. So Jesus took the opportunity to warn his disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. He, He told them not to be concerned about the opinions of other people. And the need for the love of God to be the motive for all that we do in life. A hypocrite is someone who goes through life pretending, just playing a part, just going through the motions. Having a greater fear of man than of God is one of the primary things that leads to hypocrisy in our lives. When you're afraid of what other people think about you, what they say about you, or what they can do to you, then you base all of your decision-making on the approval and acceptance of others. Proverbs 29, verse 25. This was our memory verse last week. It says, fearing people is a dangerous trap. So having a great fear of man, that's a trap. But trusting in the Lord means safety. So the remedy for hypocrisy is to forget about what other people might think, what they might say or do, and to fear God alone. And to fear God is to respond appropriately, to respond biblically to who he is, and to put our trust completely in him. We also keep hypocrisy out of our lives when we say yes to those opportunities that God gives us uh, to tell other people about him, to share about the hope that we have in Christ. When we get into the habit of telling other people about Jesus, We actually have an an easier time living in the truth, walking in the truth, and avoiding hypocrisy because we're not walking around pretending. We're doing the things that God actually called and created us to do. And then ultimately, we keep hypocrisy out of our lives when we learn to daily rely on the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. We rely on God's leading when we stay connected to him through his word, through prayer and by gathering with and serving alongside God's people uh, through the local church. And so one of the big ideas last week was that true disciples are God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. But I think far too often we get it backwards. We go through life living for the approval of others instead of God's approval. And so we avoid hypocrisy, that pretending or just playing a part when we seek to live each day for God, and we do that sincerely. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're going to stumble, we're going to fall. But just like we were reminded about in our video this morning, God's there to pick us back up. And, and sometimes it is two, step for, two steps forward and one step backwards. And so, in this story, in this context, in the midst of Jesus warning his disciples about hypocrisy and saying, you know, you see the Pharisees and everything they're doing, don't, don't follow their pattern. In the midst of all this, there was a man in the crowd who had something to say to Jesus. And we get the sense that he, he kind of yelled this out. Now, I'm curious, and this is, I don't want you to yell it out, but just think about this today. If you had the opportunity to say one thing to Jesus right now, what would it be? What would you say to Jesus if you had an audience with him? What would you ask him? What would, you, would you have a deep theological conversation about a question that's just been, you know, growing in the back of your mind. Would you want to just sit and talk? Would you have a relationship question or a work-related question, a marriage question? What, what would you ask Jesus? Well, I'm going to break today's passage down into two parts. It's kind of lengthy, but there's so much good stuff here. And we're going to see that responding to this man's comment or his request, um, Jesus shared a parable, an earthly story that had a heavenly meaning. And what he did was he warned his listeners about the relationship between wealth and worry. Jesus is going to show us that there's a direct connection between wealth and worry. I think you're going to find this parable timely and applicable Uh, This is something that we all need to hear. So let's pray uh, about our time together this morning and then we'll dive into part one. Um, Lord, I I just thank you for the reminder already today through uh, worship and through communion about um, who you are. You are uh, our loving Heavenly Father that you've sent your your one and only Son to die for us, uh, to become sin for us. And this morning as we gather around your word, um, our ultimate source of truth and authority, that you would um, reveal to us your truths, that you would uh, teach us how to be uh, faithful in our walk, that you would be glorified uh, through our gathering today. I thank you for our, our prayer this morning for our children and our youth and our daycare. We know that these ministries are in your hands and we trust you with that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So part number one, um, you you can kind of think of it like two sermons in one, but it's one story. And so we're going to try to tackle it today. Um, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. This is what we read. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. So this was this guy's one comment or one question. Is it different from your own? (laughs) Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, Beware. All right, so this is the warning. Take heed. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he told them a story. This is the parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And some of you are already saying, that's the life, right? You know, work, store these things up, and then just enjoy life. Well, this is what Jesus said. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night then who will get everything you worked for. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. What's going on here? Well, a man in the crowd interrupted Jesus. He asked him a question. He made a comment. He asked him to solve a family problem. Now, in the first century, it's important to note that rabbis were expected to help settle legal arguments. And that's one of the reasons he went to Jesus. But Jesus refused to get involved. And you got to wonder why. It's because he knew that no answer he gave would solve the real problem, which was greed in the hearts of these two brothers. As long as both men were greedy, no solution would fix the real issue. And so often we want The easy way out, right? We want the temporary fix. We don't want to address the real problem. Their greatest need was to have their hearts changed. Like many people today, they they just wanted Jesus to serve them, but not to save them. Man, how often do we fall into that trap? We want a God who will serve us, but we don't want a God who will save us. Greed or covetousness. It's an unquenchable thirst for getting more and more of something that we think that we need in order to be truly happy in life. It may be a thirst for more money, a bigger house, you know, a newer car, even a thirst for position and power. We all find ourselves in these situations. But Jesus, Jesus made it clear that true life, this abundant life that He's talked about uh, thus far, it doesn't depend on an abundance of possessions. In verse 15, he he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed, every kind of greed. He says, life is not measured by how much you own. Possessions don't make a man. Position doesn't make a man. Now, Jesus didn't deny that we have certain basic needs. He only affirmed that we can't make life richer by acquiring more things. That's not the purpose of life. Money, material possessions, position, or power aren't what ultimately brings joy and purpose into our lives. writing to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, this young pastor needed this reminder. I'm going to be honest with you. I needed this reminder this week as well. This is what Paul said. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. He's saying, you want to know how to be rich in the kingdom of God? How to have a rich relationship with God? True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Earlier on, Paul wrote about how in prison he learned contentment. Contentment is not something you're born with. It's something that you learn as you grow in your walk with Christ. He says, this is what wealth actually is. And then he says, after all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Let that be enough. Mark Twain once defined civilization as a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. I'm going to reread that in case it went over your head a little bit. He said, civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. I think think he was right on. It's this itch that we get I think men, were the worst, be blunt about it, you know, boys and their toys. We're the worst at this. We think we got to have more. We got to have more of something, whether it's a hobby or position, power. I mean, you name it, fill in the blank. We think that is what will satisfy. That is what will fill us up. And it does for a short time. But then we're left wanting more. And many Christians today are infected with greed, and we don't even realize it. I mean, after all, greed and the promise of fulfillment by having more stuff is is just like that. It's a tool that Satan uses that often flies under the radar. But for every lie that the devil tells, there's a truth of God to counter it. Amen? For every lie that the devil tells, there is a truth of God to counter it. And that's what Jesus is sharing in this parable. He told this parable to reveal the dangers that come from having a greedy heart. And I'm going to reread the parable for you. Not the whole text, but just the parable portion. And as I do, I'm going to ask that you put yourself in the farmer's shoes for a moment. Because I'm going to ask some important questions today, and you're going to have to answer those for yourself. Put yourself in his shoes and see how you would respond in these situations. So Luke 12, 16 through 21. It's really the parable, and it includes Jesus' response. So then then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops, and he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. Right, so here's the game plan. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll have room enough to store all of my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Just take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, "You fool, you will die this very night. And then who will get everything you worked for?" Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Question number one: How would you respond to the wealthy farmer's dilemma here? How would you respond to this dilemma that he, that he has? Here's a man who had a problem with too much wealth. And now maybe, maybe you're saying that's a good problem to have, <laughs> right? I, but I would say if, if your re- response is, you know, I wish I had that problem or this seems like a good problem to have, friends, you may be revealing a greedy heart. If you suddenly inherited a lot of wealth, would it create a problem for you? Be honest about that. Would it create a problem for you? Would you treat people differently because of it? Would it affect your relationship with God and with others? Or would you simply thank God and ask him what he wanted you to do with it and then live life with open hands? I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I don't think I could handle wealth like this. I don't think that I could. I mean, have you ever had that conversation with your spouse? Maybe you're driving in the car, you're sitting at home, and the conversation goes something like this. You know, what would you do if we won the lottery? What would you do if we suddenly came into, you know, millions of dollars? What would you do with the money? Faith and I have had that conversation before. And her response um, is always the same. She doesn't want it. She's like, I I would just give it away to those in need. I would support some incredible mission. Maybe we would go and be a part of that. I don't know. My response typically involves a new guitar and a Rolex. (laughs) And we laugh, but friends, I'm just being honest with you. I couldn't handle wealth like this. Not at this point in my life. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, the writer says, O God, I, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I'm poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. I feel like I can identify with this guy. I felt like that's where I would probably fall. Lying and greed, the two things on trial here. Two things that are important to guard ourselves against. And I don't believe that these two things are mutually exclusive. Typically, if you have a a greedy heart, a covetous heart, that's also a lying heart. And while it's not bad in and of itself, our response to wealth can quickly choke out God's word in our lives. It can create unnecessary temptations and traps. It'll give us a false sense of security. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Luke 12, he was writing about this and he said that people who are satisfied only with the things that money can buy are in great danger of losing the things that money cannot buy. And so in our endless pursuit of the material, we lose the eternal This farmer that Jesus wrote about, he saw his wealth as an opportunity to please himself, giving no thought to God or others. And so how do you respond to his dilemma? Do you respond like he did or do you have a little different response? Let's look at the second question. How do you respond to the wealthy farmer's decisions? How do you respond to his decisions? Uh, Verse 18 tells us that his decisions, what he did, he tore down his barns to build bigger ones. He moved from one to the next. His goal in life was the accumulation of more wealth. You know, I'd say that he had a very Western approach and mindset to wealth. We often don't give a second thought to this. And again, there's nothing wrong with being a wealthy person. We, we should work hard. We should steward the things that God has given us well. But if your end goal is to build bigger barns, you may be revealing a greedy heart. Jesus saw selfishness in all that this man said and did. He called him a fool for choosing to live this way. Selfish motivation by greed was his heart problem. And instead of living to glorify God and living to serve others, he lived to serve himself. And this is the trap that we so easily fall into. I think there's a reason that Jesus tells us to pray about everything. Everything. You know, do we pray about how we spend money? Do we pray about how we accumulate money? Sometimes the right answer in a job is not a bigger salary. But we live in a culture that says more money equals more progress, equals a higher position, equals more authority. That's not always the answer. And so, how do you respond to this farmer's decisions? Number three, if you're taking notes, how do you respond to the farmer's desires? Again, put yourself in his shoes. How would you respond to his desires? When, when you look at his example, do you say, man, that's the life. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm working towards. This man had it all. He had success, satisfaction, security. What more could a person want? Retire early? You know, go, go into retirement doing whatever you want. Man, I would say that the Christian never retires. As long as we have air in our lungs, God has something for us to do. But again, in in our Western culture and in the American church, and I love the American church, I love the church, but we get into this pattern of thinking that we work so hard for a short time and then we build up our wealth and then we just live however we want. But when you read Scripture, that's not God's pattern. That's not his plan. If this is your response, you may be revealing a greedy heart. Jesus didn't see this farmer as someone who was actually enjoying life. He saw him as someone who was facing death. You know, wealth can't keep us alive when it's our time to die and it can't buy back the opportunities we've missed while we're living. This man had a false view of both life and death. He thought that life came from the accumulation of more things and that death was far away. It was some distant thing. But that's not What was reality? Henry David Thoreau wrote that that man is the richest whose pleasures are cheapest. A man is rich in proportion to the number of things which he can afford to let alone. I think that's a good perspective. I think it's a biblical one. A desire for more is something that we all wrestle with, but it comes with a price, it comes with an empty promise of satisfaction that doesn't last. And so how do you respond to his desires? And the fourth question for this parable is how do you respond to the wealthy farmer's death? We see this in verses 20 and 21. This is how Jesus responded to this guy. He says, God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. And then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And so the focus here is not for us to get into that pattern where we say, okay, what is everything that God is against, and let's voice that. I think it's to say, what is God for, and let's be about that. I think that's why a lot of people look at the Bible and they look at the Christian faith and they say, man, it's just about a bunch of rules. Well, God sets up guardrails in our lives, absolutely. But I think as we read God's word, it's more about what does God want from me? How do I say yes to the things that he has planned for me? How do I live this abundant life that he's talking about? It's about having a rich relationship with God. So we're, we're prone to say, you know, when thinking about the end of this guy's life, we're prone to think of it as, as tragic. We're prone to say, you know, too bad this guy died right before he was able to enjoy these things when he had everything going for him, how tragic that he couldn't finish all of his plans. I think that's the typical response, but the tragedy is not in what this man left behind. The tragedy was what was before him, and that was an eternity without God. This wealthy farmer lived without God, and he died without God, and his wealth was simply a small part of his tragic story. I think it's safe to say that God is not impressed with our bank accounts. He's not. He's impressed with our hearts. The most important thing is to experience a rich relationship with him. And so what does it mean to have a rich relationship with God? I think there's a reason that Jesus used this language. There's been several books, and many of them are good, with the title, uh, Rich Towards God. Maybe you've heard of that. It comes from this passage. It talks about what it means to live a life that's rich towards God. So what does that mean? Well, I think in short, It means to acknowledge gratefully that everything we have comes from God, every good thing, and then to make an effort to use what he gives us for his glory and the good of others as we live to be kingdom workers for him. It's our time, talent, and treasure used for the glory of God. You see, wealth can actually be enjoyed and employed at the same time if our life's purpose is to honor God. Again the problem here is not the wealth it's the heart. And so I would say wealth can be enjoyed it can be employed at the same time if our life's purpose is to honor God. But the greatest tragedy is when someone is rich in this life but poor in the next. That is the greatest tragedy. Everybody take a breath. That's part 1. Let's look at part 2. Here, we're going to see this relationship between wealth and worry. How these two things are connected. And I would venture to say that every person in here has experienced this at some point in their life. Maybe right now. And so part two, we're going to see this relationship between wealth and worry. Look with me to verses 22 through 34. Then, turning to his disciples. And so, so he was talking to the crowds. And then he looks at his disciples, those who were genuinely following him. And he said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. That's why he told this parable, was to show them that they don't have to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food, and your body is more than clothing. And then he gives them these, these word pictures, these examples. Look at the ravens. You know, look at the wildlife around you. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any bird's. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? The answer is no. And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. And verse 31 is a life verse for me. This is the verse when I said yes to God's calling in my life to go into vocational ministry. This is the promise that I built that decision on. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else. And he will give you everything you need. I see over and over again in scripture, God saying, if you follow me, I will take care of you. That's the promise. He says, so don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. You hear that, ladies? Let me reread that. The purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And so you see why we read this in context, why we read it together. This wealthy farmer in the parable, he worried because he had too much wealth. His response was not a good one. But the disciples, Jesus turning to them, they were tempted to worry because they thought they didn't have enough. And I think we've fallen into both traps, right? The Apostle Paul talked about learning how to be content with plenty and content with little. And so often we look at the wealth side of things and we say, well, I'm not even anywhere near that. I I don't have to worry about that. But we find ourselves maybe on the other end where you feel like you don't have enough and here Jesus is going to speak to you. You see, these men had given up everything they had to follow Jesus. The women too. They were literally living each day by faith and faith is always tested. And I would say when you decide to trust God in this area of your life, with meeting your needs, with the, the wealth side of things, your faith will be tested as well. So I want to briefly, just in closing, address three negative side effects of worry in our lives. In this case, it's the relationship between wealth and worry, but I believe that Jesus, what he addressed here, applies to all kinds of worry. Just keep that in mind. We see the foundation is that worry is not a good thing. Worry is not good. It will always harm our relationship with God and with other people. And so number one, I'm going to go through these very quickly. Worry is destructive. Worry is destructive. The the word for worry that Jesus used here um, is best translated in English as anxious or anxiety. That that means to be torn apart about something. It's the picture of a ship being tossed around in the storm. There's no stability here. Worry brings nothing but destruction into our lives. Number two, worry is deceptive. So worry gives us a false view of life, of others, of self, and of God, most importantly. It convinces us that life is made up only of what we can see, the things we can touch, eat, and wear. When worry takes over, we become so concerned about the means that we totally forget about the end goal, which is to glorify God. That is why we were created. That is our life's purpose, is to glorify God. There's a big difference here between making a living and making a life. Jesus wants us to make a life. John 10.10 says that the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But he said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. It brings a whole new meaning to this, this verse, does it not? That God wants us to have a rich and satisfying life. Of course, he's not talking about just wealth. He's talking about having a rich relationship towards God. A life that is rich towards God is a life that trusts God completely. A satisfying life is a life that's void of the worries of the world. And I would say if you came in today with the weight of worry on your shoulders, you can give that worry to God. You can be honest with him today about that. You don't have to walk out of here with that. You were never meant to carry that. That leads us to the third and final point, and that worry is deformative. Worry is deformative. In other words, it keeps us from growing in our walk with Christ. And one author put it this way that according to Jesus, worry is unchristian. Worry is sin. Do you think of worry that way? Jesus does. Worry is unchristian. Worry is sin. And so how can we be effective witnesses to a lost world and encourage people to put their faith in Jesus if we ourselves are doubting God at every corner and carrying around the weight of worry with us? He wants to take that from you. It's inconsistent for us to preach faith and then not practice it. Maybe a little hypocritical like what we talked about last week. And so how can we win the battle with worry? Especially as it relates to wealth, but maybe in any area of our lives. Well, I think the first step is to realize that God knows our needs and we can trust him to meet those needs. We are the sheep in his flock, he said. The children in his family, the servants in his kingdom. And he will see that our needs are fully met. The second step is to remember that it's God's pleasure to give us his kingdom. Another reminder that he'll give us everything that we need, both in this life and the next. The third step is to view the world and our circumstances from God's point of view, from God's perspective, to make sure that we put God's kingdom first. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything that you need. We go back to the beginning of this passage. We see this man's question, his comment to Jesus. And Jesus' solution for the two brothers was not a political one, it was not a legal one. You know, we're entering into an election season. I think far too many put their many people put their hope in politics. They think that one person or one policy is going to save them. Only Jesus saves. Jesus' solution was a spiritual one then, and it's a spiritual one today. It's a heart issue. And so an important question for us to answer today is this: Where exactly is my heart? <laughs> Where's it at? If our hearts are fixed on the eternal, then God's promise is that his peace will guard our minds and our hearts as we seek to live for Jesus. So is your heart a greedy one or is it a trusting one? Can you be honest with God about that today?